0: Hello everyone, thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening, and enjoy!
1: I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. So, we're going to divide this week into two episodes. In the first
0: episode, we're going to focus on the trials with Pilate and Herod and the scourging and the condemnation, and then the second episode, uh, one of the most important episodes in an entire four-year cycle of Come, Follow Me, will focus on the events that take place on Calvary's Hill as Jesus is crucified and willingly gives up the ghost. Now, to begin, something we, we kind of mentioned last time is this idea that we often create a, almost a, a competition between Gethsemane and Golgotha, almost as if you have to pick a, a side to say wh- where did the, the most suffering take place. I find it fascinating. The scriptures never engage in those kinds of, of useless debates or or forcing a false dichotomy. Because the reality is, is Jesus went into Gethsemane and begins the atoning sacrifice process, and it doesn't culminate or complete until he gives up the ghost. Goes into the spirit world, his spirit, and then three days later walks triumphantly out of the tomb. That entire event is the infinite atonement, and there's this forgotten middle part that we we often overlook, and it's all of these trials and the, the scourging and the condemnation that occurs from the chief priests of the people As well as from the leadership of Rome. That would be Pilate, Herod, and Pilate. Uh, So, it's fascinating to put this in context from an Old Testament prophecy perspective, Isaiah. Watch what happens. You go to Isaiah chapter 50 and he says, verse 5, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I didn't turn away from this. I went into it and then verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. It's this idea that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will tell you about the, the scourging, the back to the smiters, but none of them even mention anything about giving his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. So, there's a lot going on in these trials that, that we don't even talk about in, in gospel accounts, but we know that there's intense suffering and a, intense abuse going on. It's fascinating from a Book of Mormon perspective, Jacob, over in 2nd Nephi chapter 9 verse 5, he gives us this, this little insight that is, once again, often overlooked in the infinite atoning process, and he says, yea, I know that ye know that in the body he shall show himself unto those at Jerusalem from whence we came. For it is expedient that it should be among them, for it behoveth the great creator that he suffereth himself to become subject unto man in the flesh, and die for all men that all men might become subject unto him." That phrase, become subject unto men in the flesh, is a beautiful description that Jacob gives us of what we see in the New Testament of Jesus saying basically to these men, not my will, but thine be done. That's what it means to become subject to. So, we're comfortable with Jesus in Gethsemane using those words with Heavenly Father, but we often overlook the fact that it behooveth him, it, it was required of him to also become completely subjected to the, to the worst of people in the flesh and let them do whatever they wanted to do to him and not stop it. And combine that with what Jacob's brother Nephi says about these events. Look at verse 9 of 1st Nephi 19, and the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Isn't that amazing? Because of their iniquity, they're going to judge the only perfect person ever to be guilty of the, the, the most heinous crimes and punish him to the full extent of their law wherefore they scourge him and he suffereth it they smite him and he suffereth it yea they spit upon him and he suffereth it because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men now in english the word suffer has has a couple of meanings one is that's causing me to suffer and that is true but i think the the beauty of verse 9 here is that it takes on both of those meanings. He didn't just suffer it, he also allowed it, which ties into what Jacob had said. He submits his will to theirs. He became subject unto men in the flesh as part of his atoning sacrifice. So, let's now return to Isaiah. Look at chapter 52 verse uh, 14. He says, as many were astonished at thee, his visage, his appearance, his countenance was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So, this subjecting himself unto men in the flesh, to to have them do all these things, and he suffereth it, He, he, he allowed it to happen, causes his visage to become so marred more so than any man. We talked about this last year in the Old Testament that that uh, Hebrew word for marred, if you change the vowel markings on it, it shifts from marred to anointed, Mashiach. So, he who was so anointed by God becomes so marred by men. Uh, the, The symbolism is hauntingly beautiful, and now we go over to chapter 53 of Isaiah and he says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This is very sacred ground that we're treading on, this idea that the only person who deserved to suffer nothing ends up suffering infinitely. He was judged according to our works, and he was found guilty and punished to the full extent of the law. And uh, Jacob in 2 Nephi 9 goes into much greater detail about that, that he answered the ends of the law, he, he paid for everything. He took us upon him and stood betwixt us and the justice that is meted out, that, that betwixt phrase used by Abinadi in, in the Book of Mosaiah. It's so powerful when you picture that this isn't just a story in scriptures anciently. This is your story. We are standing on trial, we are guilty, and punishment must be meted out, and Jesus comes and stands betwixt that punishment and you, and he absorbs that punishment to say, I don't want you to take this punishment for the full extent of your sins. I'm going to take it. It's, it's beautiful, so as we go through these uh, uh, scriptures in the Gospels today, don't – Read them from arm's distance. Take them very personally. This is about you and the Savior, Jesus Christ, paying a price that you owe but you couldn't ultimately pay and and still find salvation, but he willingly and freely paid it, not just in Gethsemane, not just on the cross, but by becoming subject unto men in the flesh.
1: Thank you, Tyler, for this really helpful intro to help us to see that the atonement of Jesus Christ is more than just like this one single event at one spot. It actually encompasses a series of events and we get from the Restoration scriptures this larger perspective of the work of God on our behalf. So then we move on and Jesus is now standing before Pilate and we get this exchange where Pilate wants to know things like, are, are you the king of the Jews. And Pilate's hearing all these things. He's trying to figure out the identity of Jesus. We've talked about this before. Some of the Jewish leaders are saying some things. Many of the people of of ancient Israel, they recognize who Jesus is, but they don't have a voice of power. And there's Pilate, this Roman governor, he doesn't know who Jesus is. But we'll see in the story that he makes this conclusion that, Jesus is innocent and I'm innocent of whatever you Jewish leaders choose to do with him. It's,
0: it's a fascinating question, isn't it, this idea of Pilate looking at Jesus, judging him, asking him questions, trying to figure out the answer to the question, who are you? What, what is your identity? Which, quite frankly, everybody on the earth today is going through that same process to one degree or another, some whether they know it or not, trying to figure out the identity of God. And I think it's fascinating that Pilate, early on in this process, seems to recognize there's, there's no guilt in this man. He, he is an innocent man. And so, I love how you pick up this story of Barabbas in verse 15. Now at that feast, this is Passover, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. That's an old English way of saying it. it's, it's the custom. It, it, they're, they're used to doing this at the feast of the Passover where kind of this symbolic uh, gesture, perhaps, of, hey, we're going to release one prisoner, forgive him completely, release him free of charge, and send him back out into society. Pull him out of prison and let him go free. What a beautiful way to celebrate Passover, right? We, we get this chesed, kindness being extended to somebody who, quite frankly, probably doesn't deserve it in most cases.
1: What's fascinating about the name is that we have, have the word here, it's Barabbas. It turns out in some of the ancient manuscripts, the full name of this prisoner is Jesus Barabbas. Now we know that the word Jesus means salvation, so his name would mean – actually we have the Aramaic which means son, and Abba means father, so it means son of the Father. So that alone is very significant. Now we are all a Barabbas. All of us, because we have sinned, are condemned and on our own cannot enter into the presence of God but we are all a child of the Father, we are all a bar and yet when his, he gets called Jesus Barabbas, Savior or anointed Son of the Father, so it's really interesting that the real Savior, the real anointed one, who was the full Son of the Father, is the one who takes our place, takes his place to be condemned at Passover that we all might be released from the grave, from sin, and from punishment. It's it's amazing to me that he
0: was the one who was picked. Obviously the symbolism is is profound, but the, the fact that he's the one standing next to Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the Father, implies to me that Pilate really was trying really hard to get Jesus released. So, he finds a notable prisoner to stand next to Jesus who, if you combine all of the gospel accounts and look at the various accusations leveled against Barabbas, you get a thief, a a murderer, a seditionist.
1: I mean, the worst of the worst. And so, yeah, Pilate's trying to say, okay, you have an innocent man and like the worst offender in your society that is offended individually and communally. And Who do you guys want? <laughs> C- can you see
0: this contrast? Can you see, on one side, you have a man who has taken things from you that weren't his, he's stolen from people, he's taken life away from people, he's a murderer, and he has uh, riled people up into insurrection. Yeah, he's trying
1: to take away people's freedom through sedition.
0: And next to him, you have a man who has done nothing but give to people things that they, quite frankly, didn't deserve and didn't earn. Instead of robbing from them, he's done the opposite. He's given to them. Instead of taking life, he's given it. He's restored it. Instead of causing riots, he's the ultimate peacemaker, prince of peace in in most Uh, of his experiences of life. So you get this stark contrast standing in front of the people as Pilate says, okay,
1: which prisoner are we going to do this Passover tradition with? We're going to release one of them free of charge. And you can imagine for Pilate, it's like, it's clear how the people are going to respond. They're going to be really rational and really thoughtful, and they're going to take the innocent guy versus the rabble-rouser, murderer, Mm thief, thieve monger
0: And verse 18, notice Matthew's description here, for he, that's Pilate, knew that for envy they had delivered him or Jesus. He he knew it's – they're envious of Jesus, they're jealous of his disciples and of his power and of his claims that they can't
1: refute. By the way, this word envy, the underlying Greek word, uh, is related to corruption or ill will that just sours. So look at
0: verse 19, when he was sat down in the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, have thou nothing to do with that just man, just or righteous or justified man. He's innocent. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Now you go to verse 20, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should
1: ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. That word persuaded is also interesting. If you look at the Greek, it means pseudo it says pseudopistis or false faith. Now, we know faith typically is intended to be a positive word, and here the Jewish leaders are falsely inspiring people to take negative action against Jesus with this false faith.
0: So, in that, with that understanding, Pilate now comes to the group and says, okay, whom will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate saith unto them, what shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent. There's that word again. Of the blood of this just
1: person see ye to it. That washing of hands, the the Greek word is actually very intense of like where you're washing something off for total cleansing. Scrubbing, right? Yeah. So he doesn't want to be connected to this at all. And, And this portion concludes on a very sobering verse It says in verse 25, then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Now this is an important place to pause for a few minutes. First of all, when we use the phrase blood in this context, and similar contexts, blood is a symbol of responsibility. And so these Jewish people are claiming we will be responsible for his death and our children should also be responsible for uh, his death. Now don't we have something in the Articles of Faith that the sins of the fathers should not be taken out upon the children? And unfortunately, this verse has been used over centuries to persecute, harass, and even murder Jewish people. So we have to be careful here that just because some people at the time of Jesus wanted to take responsibility, it doesn't actually mean every last single Jewish person happened to be in that meeting and therefore they should be condemned. And second of all, nowhere in scripture does Jesus say, I need people to avenge my death? He just never says that. So, we can feel sad that there were, in the large scheme of the number of people who lived in the world, a very small number of people who purposely chose to condemn Jesus to death. But we don't have to be part of either condemning them or condemning Jesus. We can rejoice that Jesus was willing to be subject unto men, that we might be all subject to him.
0: So now it says, verse 26, then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I I don't know about you, but I don't feel warm fuzzy feelings towards Barabbas. In fact, I don't like him at all. I, I feel very negatively towards him, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you dirty rat. You're guilty, or at least it seems that you're guilty, and you just got released free of charge, and he who is innocent is now going to symbolically be taken kind of in your place and crucified after being scourged, and I don't like Barabbas very much. Then there was one day uh, many years ago when I was preparing to teach a lesson in seminary up at uh, Box Elder High School in Brigham City. And I was preparing this particular passage and I was ready to talk about how much I dislike Barabbas. And a very gentle thought wafted across my, my mind that said, Oh, be careful, Tyler. You're Barabbas. I was like, wait, what? And then it hit me. This is my story. This is me standing next to Jesus, the real Son of the Father, and he got condemned, and I get released. This, this is my story. I, I no longer despise Barabbas. We know his name. Many years later when these Gospels are being written, his name is included, which tells us people many years after these events, they knew who Barabbas was still. I'm holding out hope that Barabbas wasn't just released into the crowd and then went back to his his past ways. I'm holding out hope that Barabbas went into the crowd and paused and looked back and saw Jesus the son of his father who's being condemned and that it changed him and that this becomes the beginning of a a conversion process for him. We don't know that, but for our story, that's what I'm holding out hope for, is that uh, it ties into that old saying that many of you have probably heard, a perfect man at an imperfect trial was found guilty so that one day, an imperfect person at a perfect trial might be found not guilty. This is our story. There's so much we don't know for sure because it's not contained in the Gospels about all of the specifics of the scourging process. What we do know is that the the Roman soldiers have figured out ways to make this an excruciating, uh, shameful, extremely uh, painful death that begins with scourging culminates with crucifixion. Uh, If you look at early depictions of crucifixion and scourging, you'll see in some of these graffitis that there are stripes across the back of the crucified individuals you'll also see that those stripes go from the neck all the way down to the knees. I think with Jesus, his countenance, his visage, his appearance is marred more so than any man, and they are mocking him openly as the king of the Jews, and so they're, they're going to pile it on with him more so than, a, than any other traditional crucifixion uh, person who's, who's condemned to die. And so, what we do know is that he gave his back to the smiters. He suffered it, in both senses of the word suffered. And to me, the most amazing thing about this is he didn't have to do it. He, at any point, could have even thought the word. He wouldn't even need to say it. He could have thought, stop, and they would have had no power. They would have had to stop. He could have destroyed them with just a simple thought, but he didn't. He suffered it because of his loving kindness towards the children of men, towards us. It's because of me, it's because of you that he stood there and suffered this, this senseless abuse. Um when he when they finish the scourging process, Matthew says they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. Joseph Smith translation tells you it's a purple robe.
1: Yeah, a symbol of kingship, again, it's trying to psychologically make fun of Jesus and to also say something to the Jewish people. Well, this is what you guys think your king is, and look at what we've done to him.
0: Some of you may be wondering, this this robe, where does it come from? It's fascinating, only Luke – tells you uh, an additional story. Matthew, Mark, and John totally skip it. It's where Pilate says, hey, Herod, the, he, he's in town and he has jurisdiction over Galilee. I'm, I'm going to send Jesus to Herod. So, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is sent over to Herod and Herod is so excited to see Jesus because he's heard all the stories and he he, he gathers the people around him and, and it's as if they're they're attending a circus act and they want to see a magic show. That's how he's approaching it and he's so excited to, to see these great wonders that Jesus can perform and in front of Herod, Jesus says nothing, doesn't say a word, stands there. As the lamb before the shears is silent, even so Jesus opened not his mouth, to, to use another Isaiah concept and so it's Herod's uh, experience where they put this purple robe on him as a sign of mockery again. So he's being mocked by Herod and now he's being mocked by these uh, soldiers who have taken that robe off, done the scourging, now they put the robe back on him.
1: And frankly, once your back has been scourged, it is just stinging with pain, anything that touches it would just amplify that pain. So it's not just the, the the visual mockery of he isn't the real king that they put the purple on, but it's the physical pain that just goes on and, as we said early on, he suffereth it, he allows it.
0: And we, we keep moving in that direction, verse 29, when they had plated a crown of thorns they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying,
1: Hail, King of the Jews." And that plant still grows today, that thorn plant, and it can have thorns of an inch or more, and so now you have this press against his head of this fake crown and just penetrating into the skin and the skull. it is extremely painful. And verse
0: 30, they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. Brothers and sisters, he, he's he been through Gethsemane. He's been through the condemnation from, from his own people, the leaders of the Jews. He's He's been turned over by Pilate, and now after this scourging with this crown of thorns, they're they're heaping on this additional abuse of mocking him and, and beating him on the head with that reed, a head that now wears a crown of thorns. Um, this is an amazing concept of condescension. The, the one person who had rights to the royal crown in heaven gave that up to condescend. And come down and take upon him our flesh, our sins, our imperfections and weakness. And the world judges him as a thing of naught, mocks him, spits upon him. Um, and verse 31, it says, After that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put on his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him.
1: So, Often they would make the person who's going to be crucified carry their own cross. And these are substantial beams. Some estimates are 70 pounds. So imagine he's physically spent and having suffered in Gethsemane, been up all night, and he's been beat, he's scourged. And so you might imagine just the physical challenge it is for him to carry the cross through through the city of Jerusalem. And in this case, we get the story of this Jewish man who showed up to celebrate the Passover. We don't really hear much more about Simon the Cyrene other than the Romans grab him out of the crowd and say, you're going to help Jesus carry this cross to the place of crucifixion.
0: Yeah, the, the fascinating part of this story to me is that we know his name. It's not just some random passerby in the crowd. We know his name, we know where he's from. If we read in Mark 15 verse 21, it says, "...and they compel one, Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross." This is, this is significant because we know Simon of Cyrene and Alexander and Rufus his, his two sons. It's significant because this is one of the few times in all of scripture, where you see somebody doing something for Jesus that he may not have been uh, able to fully do for himself at that time, carry his cross the rest of the way. So the soldiers grab Simon, put the cross on him. The fact that all these gospel writers include his name seems to hint that Simon is well known among many people many years later when, when the, whenever the gospels are being written down, and also his sons. I can imagine Simon to the day he died and as a part of his family legacy that everybody would remember him as the man who carried the cross for Jesus the rest of the way to the hill. Huh. I wonder if if you're Simon. I wonder if I'm Simon. I wonder if this is our story. I wonder if Jesus... Is asking us to take up the cross and walk that painful, uh, sorrowful road with Him. That we learn things about Him when we carry the crosses of life that are placed upon our shoulders. This is a this is once again a hauntingly beautiful story to me to see that this isn't just. description of what happened 2,000 years ago. This is a very relevant discussion about my discipleship with Jesus Christ today and moving forward, realizing it's probably not going to be a path of least resistance or a walk through the
1: daisies. So, as we conclude this episode, we reflect on all that Jesus chose to do for us. We have this sense of humility where we feel this invitation from Jesus that we don't need to suffer as he suffered if we choose him. He did all this willingly for us that we can find the peace and the justification that he deserved. He now shares it with us. Often
0: we use the phrase, Jesus died for me, or Jesus died for us, and that's wonderful, and I hope we keep using that phrase. It's true. But as we reflect on the events in Gethsemane and through the trials and now leading up to the cross, the older I've gotten, the more I've become aware of the fact that Jesus lived for me and for you. He didn't just die for us on the cross. He lived for us through these excruciating, infinite agonies and and these terrible abuses. What does that mean? It means it's a free will offering that he made. At any point, Jesus could have pulled back and said, no more. I don't deserve this. But he suffereth it. He willingly went through it. He chose to live for us when he, who is the only person who has power over life and death, who could have at any point given up the ghost and said, I- I'm done, this is too much, it's too heavy, he chose to live until the ultimate price was paid. He didn't fall short. He didn't give up. He didn't give up the ghost prematurely, even though I can imagine every part of his mortal being everything that he had inherited from his mortal mother, Mary, probably would have been pleading with him to just give up the ghost and be done with the incredible pain and suffering, but he suffereth it. He lived for us. So, it it is a fascinating reality that Jesus ultimately died for us, and it's essential that that happened, but to me, I stand all amazed that he chose to live for us throughout that process. For the second part of this week's episode, we now go to the events that take place at Golgotha on Calvary's Hill, and this is um, this is very sacred ground. Some of the the most important events in all of eter- all of eternity as far as we're concerned, are going to take place in these next sets of verses that we're going to cover here. Um, when, they, when they arrive at the hill, this is outside of the gates of the city, it's by a main thoroughfare. The Romans are not trying to be kind or discreet about their their crucifixion uh, victims, they want, they want public shaming, they want to show the might of, of Rome, and so they're not going to, to treat anybody that they're crucifying with with any kind of gentle or, or tender cares. They're going through this process of crucifixion. This is cruel. They have figured out ways to get a, a person to the threshold of pain that is excruciating, but not so much that they pass out or, or die instantly. It's, it's a terrible, terrible uh, way to die.
1: So you're right, the Romans had figured out how to amplify and get to the extreme physical, emotional, mental, and psychological suffering, and that is what Jesus experienced. At the crucifixion
0: so after after they place him on the cross and and lift him up, which by the way is interesting because sometimes we we shy away from talking about the cross. it's painful nobody nobody loves seeing the crucifixion portrayed in in art or in film it's it hurts. It's painful to watch that level of, of human cruelty to another, and especially to he who deserved to suffer the least, now being punished as, as a terrible criminal. Uh, it, it hurts. But it's interesting that if you look at the Book of Mormon, the way it talks about the mission and the atonement of Jesus Christ, the Savior himself in 3 Nephi 27, when he's giving his apostles the definition for his gospel, what is his gospel, you'll notice how he opens in verse 13, behold, this is the gospel which I have given unto you, that I came into the world to do the will of my Father, because my Father sent me. And verse 14 says, and my Father sent me, that I might be lifted up upon the cross. It's interesting that here he's saying the the number one thing I was sent to this earth to do was to be lifted up by men upon the cross. And and he goes on, um, and after that I had been lifted upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father to stand before me, to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil." Don't you find it ironic, Taylor, that he's saying, I was lifted up by men so that I can lift men up to be judged of their works, and the irony to me is Jesus was already judged of my works and he was found guilty and he was punished to the full extent of the law. He, he already went through judgment for me and unrighteously by that group of people was found guilty and punished to the full extent of the law so that one day I could be brought before him and judged with a righteous judgment and through his mercy and grace hopefully be pronounced not guilty.
1: And what we see here is the power of restoration scriptures to enlighten and expand our understanding of the beautiful truths that have been preserved over the millennia in the Old and New Testament.
0: I love that. And then you combine that with words of modern prophets. For instance, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave an incredible talk in October 2022, General Conference, about the cross and this idea that we don't need to use it as an icon or as a symbol for our religion, to still appreciate and study and understand the significant impact that the events that took place on that cross, uh, how they would impact us in our lives and in eternity. So once they've – once they've placed the Savior on the cross between the, the two malefactors, we know that according to Mark's timing, that he's placed on the cross at around 9 a.m., and from 9 to noon, if we follow Mark's timeline, he makes a few statements, and then there's going to be thick darkness that's going to to gather at noon from noon to 3, so three hours of, of intense additional suffering we'll talk about a little bit later, and then shortly thereafter he's going to make his final statements And then ultimately give up the ghost, they then are going to remove his body to place it in the tomb before the sun sets, sometime around 6 p.m., roughly. So that kind of gives you a time frame of these events, but in all of that time, we only have really seven recorded statements on the cross. So let's work our way through these one at a time. We don't know the exact order because we get some from each of the gospel writers and we we have to kind of guess as to what would be a logical flow for these seven statements, but this is not a guarantee that these are in the exact order. So the first one, let's jump in, Luke 23, 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they parted his raiment and cast lots. So the they, the the pronoun here in this verse, all of the they's and the them's seem to be pointing at the Roman soldiers who have mocked him and who have previously scourged him, taken him to the hill, and now they've taken off that that robe again and probably thrown him to the ground and, and secured him to the cross. And I don't know about you, but... With the kind of power Jesus has, I'm, I stand in awe that he would, in that moment, with that intense suffering that has just been inflicted on him by those men, that he could find it inside of his soul, inside of his character to be able to say, Father, please forgive them,
1: for they know not what they do. This word forgive that we are so familiar with, but sometimes we, we don't really look at words as closely as we should, there's two words going on here. The, the foundational portion of forgive is giving something. What God, Jesus is asking of the fathers, to give them grace, give them an opportunity to exit from the suffering that they are going to experience. And the word for here means to be complete or thorough or a hundred percent. So, Jesus is not saying, Go lightly on them. He's saying 100% give to them the very best that you have to offer. That's what forgiveness is. It means to fully give away any hurt, rancor, evil thought, to give that all away and instead give the gift of total and undying love. It's beautiful.
0: Now, the next statement that we get from the cross comes in this, in this little interchange between the two malefactors on either side of him where one of them is saying in verse 39, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. The irony of that statement is that Jesus could have very easily saved them from their, their immediate pending death as well as himself, but in the process, they would have – that would have brought upon them an eternal death, as we've mentioned before from the Book of Mormon, the prophet Jacob in 2nd Nephi 9 verse 7 and 8 talks about, if Jesus Christ doesn't complete an infinite atonement, then our bodies would rot and crumble to Mother Earth to rise no more, and our spirits would become subject to the devil to rise no more so the irony is thick in this part that yes, he could have saved himself, those, those nails are not the thing holding him to the cross. It is his love, it is his devotion to a covenant that he made and he's going to keep that's holding him to the cross. You, you can't take Jesus's life away from him against his will. You can't force him to do anything that he doesn't choose to do. And so, this, this statement came, and then it's interesting to me that it's the other malefactor on the other side, in verse 40, who responds, the other answering rebuked him, saying, dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And he indeed, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Even this man recognizes the complete and utter innocence of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross next to him. And then he says, verse 42, unto Jesus,
1: Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. This makes me think about any one of us would say this to Jesus. I want him to remember me. I'm a malefactor, and I know that I'm not innocent. And I want him to remember me when he enters into the kingdom.
0: Isn't that amazing when you can take the scriptures to to a personal level? I I see myself, Taylor sees himself, I I hope you can see yourself, we can all see ourselves reflected here in this sentiment of, of, please remember me um, in thy kingdom. And here's the statement from Jesus in verse 43. Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise." The thing that's kind of fascinating in this part of our story, we've we've only gotten in two of the seven recorded statements, the fact that Jesus is so turned outward. Elder David A. Bednar has talked about the character of Christ, how how in certain settings the human tendency, the natural man, natural woman tendency is to turn inward and, and and play the poor me card, but not Jesus. It's in this moment where he's lifted up, he's been crucified with nails through the, the wrists and through the palms of his hands. That's going to be creating all kinds of, of muscle and, and nerve tension in his body so much pain that it would be easy for him to just zone everybody and everything out and just be focused on what he's suffering, but he's not. He's turned outward. Even in that moment of excruciating pain, he's focused on the Roman soldiers, on the two malefactors at his side. And Well, building on
1: this, when we are – when we feel like victims, whether because of what we tell ourselves or because truly we are suffering, when we suffer, it's harder for us to treat others as God wants them to be treated. In fact, when we are hurting, we are more likely to create victims of others. And what does Jesus do? He does – he breaks the cycle of victimhood, but he doesn't spread that victimhood by taking it out on others. He doesn't go and amplify the victimhood by hurting others that they might know how he hurt. He instead absorbs and liberates those around him. And I learned years ago from some friends when I was at uh, Yale Divinity School, it was a very compelling concept. They said, one of the things we learn from Jesus is how to suffer. i had never considered that before. And we look at, here he is suffering, and he's modeling for us, as David Elder David Ed Bednar talked about, this character of when you suffer, your purpose is not to cause other people to suffer, but to turn outward and become liberated through God by loving others even while you are suffering. It's a very hard thing to do and Jesus exemplifies it.
0: So we can strive to be like him and uh, mortality throws enough opportunities at us to keep practicing this principle. Uh, Now we come to possibly his, his third statement and we have to go over to John to get this recorded statement, John 19, 26 through 27. There at the the cross, we find Mary, his mother, and John, the beloved apostle, standing, and he says in verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. Now some of you might be wondering, what is the significance of this? I think it's fascinating that Jesus, as the firstborn son of Mary, under their Jewish law, he is responsible for the care and the protection of his mother because Joseph is gone. He's he's probably passed away sometime between Jesus' 12-year-old experience at the temple, which is the last time we saw J- uh, Joseph in the record, and never again after that. So, somewhere in those 18 years before Jesus' ministry began, um, Joseph has probably passed on, which leaves now Jesus in charge of the family. And even while he's on the cross, he is still fulfilling his not just his responsibilities to his Heavenly Father, but also his duties and his responsibilities to his earthly mother. It's so simple and yet it's so tender and sweet to me that in that moment he's thinking of all the people who – Jesus is in charge, he gets to decide. Some would say, well, it should have been one of his half-brothers, James or Jude or somebody else, but Jesus is the one who gets to decide and he chose John. And isn't it interesting that John is the only person who's alive at that point who is guaranteed to outlive his mother. John, who will be given the opportunity to be translated and who is still on the earth, what a beautiful thing that he – he gives his mother into the watchful care and keeping of John, the beloved disciple. There's no better person to take care of his mother
1: than than John. Another act of mercy specifically calculated to the needs of those who are involved.
0: And if he'll take that level of personalized, tender mercy-type care for Roman soldiers, for, for condemned malefactors beside him, as well as for his mother, in that moment of intense, excruciating pain, oh, how much he'll take that kind of care for you and for me, for all of us in our situations today as he sits enthroned in yonder heavens. Which now brings us to the fourth statement. This one, let's let's go over to Matthew 27, 46. This one is – perhaps the most painful of the seven statements, because it says in verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. So Matthew's following Mark's timeline here, That from the sixth to the ninth hour, that would be from about noon to 3 p.m.,
1: darkness. And Jesus is also experiencing the darkness. We often think about the land and the people around being in darkness. Jesus is there too. He has a physical body, and it seems to bleed into how he's feeling in his heart and mind that he seems to be enveloped internally in darkness for a moment of wondering that we get this very powerful statement.
0: This is perhaps the most intense moment experienced by anybody in all of eternity when in that moment Jesus cried with a loud voice. So he's he's gone through the infinite agonies of Gethsemane. He's lived through the trials with and the and the scourging and the abuse at the hands of the Roman soldiers. He's been taken to the hill. He's up on the cross and now after three hours of darkness, he calls out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You'll remember back in the Kidron Valley before he entered into Gethsemane, he he told his apostles, the eleven that were with him, he said, this night you'll all be scattered. You'll know, all leave me alone, but I'm not alone because the Father is always with me. And now his cry from the cross is, Why hast thou forsaken me? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave a talk, none were with him, uh, a few years ago in General Conference. And he said this Now I speak very carefully, even reverently of what may have been the most difficult moment in all of this solitary journey to atonement. I speak of those final moments for which Jesus must have been prepared intellectually and physically, but which he may not have fully anticipated emotionally and spiritually, that concluding descent into the paralyzing despair of divine withdrawal when he cries in ultimate loneliness, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then Elder Holland went on to say, with all the conviction of my soul, I testify that he did please his Father perfectly, and that a perfect Father did not forsake his Son in that hour. Indeed, it is my personal belief that in all of Christ's mortal ministry, the Father may never have been closer to his Son than in these agonizing final moments of suffering. The problem is, Jesus isn't able to feel that presence. He feels completely cut off from the presence of God. Now some of you may be wondering, so what's going on here? Why, why all of a sudden at that moment? Notice the precursor to this was that darkness from the, the sixth to the ninth hour. In Jesus the Christ, written by Elder James E. Talmadge, he says the following, It seems that in addition to the fearful suffering incident to crucifixion, the agony of Gethsemane had recurred, intensified beyond human power to endure. Now let's look for some triangulation, some additional witnesses to to this concept of what's going on during those three hours. Elder Bruce R. in his final testimony in April, 1985 General Conference just a few weeks before he passed away. He said, while he was hanging on the cross for another three hours from noon to 3 p.m., all the infinite agonies and merciless pains of Gethsemane recurred. And then one more, much more recently, from President Russell M. Nielsen in his talk about the correct name of the Church, he said the following, In the Garden of Gethsemane, our Savior took upon himself every pain, every sin, and all the anguish and suffering ever experienced by you and me and by everyone who has ever lived or will ever live. Under the weight of that excruciating burden, he bled from every pore. All of this suffering was intensified as he was cruelly crucified on Calvary's cross." So both Elder Talmadge and President Nelson used this qualifying word, intensified. I, I don't suppose to know all of the, the details of, of what Jesus is exactly experiencing in this experience of crucifixion. But I do know enough about human, physical, mortal suffering to be able to contrast what what we can see on the scripture page from Gethsemane compared to Golgotha. And I can at least see why Elder Talmadge and President Nelson might use the word intensified if you get the full weight of Gethsemane returning to him on the cross, why it would be considered intensified. Ponder for a moment, if you will, what kind of a condition you would prefer to be in when you're suffering the worst pain that you can remember ever suffering in your life. Go to to that that most painful point of your life and ask the question, would you rather be vertical or horizontal? I think most of us would rather be laying down rather than upright. Would you rather be uh, free to kind of curl up, or would you rather be stretched out? Would you rather have a whole bunch of people watching you, or would you rather have a little bit of privacy? Would you rather have it be in the middle of the day, or perhaps in the middle of the night? Would you you like to have an angel come and comfort you, or would you prefer to do it alone? (laughs) On every one of these levels, you can see how that infinite agony that began in Gethsemane, at least there are some elements associated with the surrounding and the setting that he doesn't get the benefit of those the next morning on the cross. And you can see how that pain and that agony would be intensified in that physical position and condition in front of all those people who are mocking him and reviling him, making fun of him, In the very moment when he is paying the price to redeem their soul, the irony is thick. Is it any wonder that he would pull up on those nails and in a loud voice cry out saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew everybody else was going to forsake him, but for some reason he didn't see this one coming, this feeling of being cut off or having a veil cast over his mind or his spirit so he couldn't feel the presence of the the Father. This is very sacred ground, this moment right here.
1: This is probably the most opportune time for Jesus to abandon God. People suffer, and my experience has been, as I have observed people suffering and how they choose to either be more faithful or perhaps turn away from faith, when people feel abandoned by God, some people choose to walk away from God. And in this moment of his feeling of total abandonment, Jesus did not abandon the Father. He chose to remain faithful, and I find that stunning, compelling, and inviting that in my own suffering, I too, when I feel like I'm struggling or suffering in ways that I feel are unjust and God has abandoned me, that is the invitation to more fully seek after and embrace the Father.
0: That is such a good reminder to all of us as we seek to become more like the Savior, especially in those moments of of feeling abandoned. Is it any wonder why we sing, I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me? Is it any wonder that we say that we're confused at the grace that so fully he proffers us through this this infinite uh, atoning sacrifice? Uh, and that other hymn, we may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there, and he didn't give up on the Father, and he didn't give up on us. What a a great opportunity and invitation for us to be able to try to uh, apply that in our own life, and as as a conclusion to that particular statement, don't you find the 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 result a little ironic? Again, that he asked this question, "Why hast thou forsaken me?" And there's no recorded answer in Scripture. It's not as if the forsaking, the feeling of being forsaken, ended because he asked the question. it seemed to continue.
1: We could compare this with Joseph Smith, Doctrine of Covenants 121, who in his suffering in Liberty Jail wonders, a little bit like Jesus, God, where art thou in my suffering? And what happens? There is a very long, powerful Response. Now, now, God may have responded. Jesus may have felt response. We don't know. We don't know. But as Tyler's pointing out, it's interesting the way the text is recorded is we see silence in the text. And that simply adds to the suffering. Imagine, just for analogy, the Joseph Smith story, where he asked the question and we don't get DNC 121 or 122.
0: And the reality there is that it's probable that Joseph has been asking the question about where God is for days, weeks, and even months. So we're what, 5 months into the Liberty Jail experience when we finally get the the response. So it is possible that Joseph has asked the question multiple times but he's finally getting the answer yeah. 5 months later after that cold, painful winter. What's the in reminder? Liberty.
1: The reminder for all of us is that uh, sometimes we have to endure to the end, and we have to gain strength by choosing to exercise faithfulness even in the face of our seeming crushing reality of unending suffering and that we feel that God may have abandoned us. And yet, he hasn't. As we learned uh, in Third Nephi 27, Jesus suffered all this so that we, are never left alone because of what he did, we are promised to be brought back into the presence of the Father.
0: So we go over to John 19, 28, and this, this is a, a painful sequence to consider in that he, he's come through this infinite agony, and he's showing us what it looks like to endure to the end and trust in, put, put all of his trust in God, even in the face of, of every reason why he shouldn't. He, he endures to the end, he perseveres, and then notice the opening to verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now
1: accomplished. That phrase, after this, we just pass over it. It's like, after all of these things, just so much suffering, and then we get to this really painful, poignant moment that we will see from Jesus here.
0: Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. This mortal need, I am thirsty. Can you imagine why he might be thirsty after Gethsemane and the the bleeding from every pore after being scourged, the crown of thorns, the physical exhaustion of that whole night and the morning and being nailed to the cross, he's thirsty. If you go back to the hymn book in the first century to the Psalms, Psalm 69 verse 20 says, reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness, And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink." Hauntingly beautiful how Jesus is in that moment telling them that he's thirsty, so what do they do? there was set there a full vessel of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. The symbolism is amazing because they're taking hyssop, which is a little plant with sponge-like qualities, they dip it into the vinegar mingled with gall, this in the Greek in some of the translations it would be this sour wine, and they dip that in and they lifted up to him." Hyssop happens to be the plant that was used back in Exodus 12 to dip into the blood of the lamb to then paint the doorposts and the lintel in Egypt the night of the original Passover. The blood of the lamb had to be shed, the hyssop is dipped into it as a paintbrush. and at their Passover meal that night, they would take hyssop, looks similar to parsley, and they would dip it in bitter herbs and eat it. The bitterness and the herbs, the bitterness of bondage and slavery, and it's all there in Exodus 12, and now here we are at the real event. Everything else has been symbolically pointing to this moment, and now here's Jesus the Passover lamb, and there was no passing over for him. He had The firstborn had to die, had to shed his blood, give up his life on the cross. And here's this hyssop coming into play again.
1: He drinks the bitter dregs.
0: The bitter cup. And now you come to verse 30, which could be in in John's Gospel, the final statement on the cross. He says, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Those are three of my favorite words ever written anywhere in any book at any time. It is finished. Those three words are so significant because Jesus didn't get to a certain point partway through the atoning sacrifice and say, I'm finished, I I can't do this anymore. He lived through everything, all of the agonies, all of the cruelty, all of the unfairness, all of the, the terrible weight that was placed upon him in a crushing way both in Gethsemane through the trials and on the cross until he could finally say, it is finished, and only then did he choose to give up the ghost. So we get Luke's final statement of of the Savior on the cross when he says, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So if you look at John and Luke together, it, it could almost be like this this sequence of, it is finished, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit.
1: The underlying word for finished is the Greek word teleo, which can be translated in multiple ways. It can be finished, complete. Even our word perfection, which in English has multiple meanings, So, things have been perfect, or I am fully done. Everything has been completed and all tied up into one great whole. So, it's a very powerful word that's used here. And it really demonstrates the finality that his mission on earth, he's won. He's absolutely won, which is back to your point. Those three words, it is finished, are probably the most exciting words anyone ever heard in the heavens. Because at this point, It's a given that he's going to go into into the spirit world and he's going to come back out and break the bands of death. he He has crossed the finish line when he says, it is finished. I imagine for us who had been there watching the suffering, we're watching from heaven, agonizing with him, and yet the eruptions of joy and shouting of excitement when he says it is finished, we realize he's won and we all win because of him.
0: I love that. Um, the, the next three-word phrase that um, completes it all is, he is risen, that we'll talk about next week. You take that, it is finished, combined with he is risen, overcame hell and sin and all of the effects, spiritual effects of the fall of, of Adam and Eve, and now, overcoming all of the grave and the effects of death, you put this together, and there was great rejoicing in heaven. At this point, we're sometime after 3 p.m. Uh, we don't know; could have been 3:30, 4 o'clock. We don't know. But it's starting to get to the point where the leaders of the Jews are a little nervous. And in John's account, because Passover feast is going to be that night, they go to. Pilate and demand that the the three men on the cross be killed so their bodies can be removed because it would be considered um, inappropriate to have these, these human bodies out on a cross on a high Sabbath. So it's not just Saturday or Sabbath, but in John's account, it's also Passover. And so the soldiers go and they break the legs of the two malefactors. Uh, adding that intense pain and trauma to the fact that they can no longer pull up, the, the muscle strength is gone, so they can't pull up on the cross and they can't lift up on their legs anymore to breathe, <clears throat> and with that added trauma, death would come very quickly for them. But they come to Jesus and they see that he's, he already appears to be dead, thus driving a spear into his heart. And in John's account, out comes water and blood. And you've heard people refer to Jesus dying of a broken heart um, and the symbolism of that. And then you get Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, in John's account, coming to the cross to prepare his body for a very quick burial in Joseph's newly hewn out tomb. And then we finish uh, this particular difficult sequence uh, in, in the infinite atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ with a phenomenon that took place in the temple at the crucifixion and the death of Christ. So we read in Matthew 27 verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Did you catch the significance? This is a veil that's roughly 60 feet tall. It's enormous, and it was rent or ripped from the top to the bottom.
1: And the veil also has, according to some accounts, depictions of the stars in the heavens. And there's all this powerful symbolism going on
0: that Jesus, the great high priest, has now died and gone through the veil to the spirit world. It's as if at his death he is parting and ripping open that veil from the top to the bottom. And keep in mind also that the veil keeps everybody out of the presence of God except for the high priest who is allowed to go in one time per year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And now here's Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is ripping open that separating line. He's tearing down all the barriers for people to invite all now to come into the presence of God, not just one man once a year. There are dozens of symbols that you could explore and study regarding this rending of the veil and what it might symbolize for us and for you today. But there's one that sometimes gets overlooked, and it's It's this idea of when a Hebrew or a Jewish father finds out about the death of a child, their their immediate response would be to rip or rend their clothes. One of the potential symbols that I find very significant and very compelling with this rending of the veil is an outward sign of how Heavenly Father feels about what his Son just completed and just endured and now has died. This this rending of the veil, this intense sign of, of agony that is shared between Father and Son in that moment is another possible way of many ways to look at the the ripping of the veil experience. To finish this episode, um, I'd love to just share these words one more time. I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me, confused at the grace that so fully he proffers me. I tremble to know that for me he was crucified, that for me, a sinner, he suffered, he bled, and died. I marvel that he would descend from his throne divine to rescue a soul so rebellious and proud as mine, that he should extend his great love unto such as I, sufficient to own, to redeem, and to justify." I think of his hands pierced and bleeding to pay the debt. Such mercy, such love and devotion can I forget? No, no. I will praise and adore at the mercy seat until at the glorified throne I kneel at his feet. Oh, it is wonderful that he should care for me, enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful wonderful to me. Brothers and sisters, we give it as our testimony that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for me, for all of us, and that he loves you because of what he endured for you, his capacity to love you and to succor you and to turn outward to you was thus infinitely expanded and increased. How we love the Lord for his his goodness, his mercy and his grace, and he lives. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Know that you're loved.
1: And spread light and goodness.